0: Turn to Philippians chapter 2. This is part 2 of an inside job, kind of doing this series as taking a break from Daniel for a little bit and getting into some real practical theology um, about Christ in us, living his life through us. And this verse, Philippians chapter 2, I referred to it last week, but I, I didn't refer to verse 12. I, revert, I referred to verse 13 and then chapter 1 and verse 6. But let's look at these two verses in Philippians, starting with verse 12. Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Uh Uh-oh. Uh-oh. You gotta work for your salvation? What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that. Because look at the next verse. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Let's pray and then we'll look at this. Jesus, I pray that this message would just speak to hearts and that the Holy Spirit would just have liberty and freedom to um, communicate with your, with your children, um, myself included, that Jesus would be the teacher as we know that he is the author and the finisher of our faith, but that he would be glorified in all that's said and done. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is a working out, that which was worked in. As we think about, this is an inside job. And Jesus, the very name Yeshua, or Jesus, the very name means Savior. It's not like a name like John, or Bob, or Ed, or anything like that. It's The name Jesus is more of a title, it's more of a verb, actually. It is a noun, but it's an action, because Because he is the Savior, he's able to save people. And why am I bringing that up? It's because we are to work out the life of the Savior in the life of the saved. It's grace, it's not works. It's grace, not works. It is God who is at work in us, transforming us and conforming us to the image of his Son, the Lord Jesus, the Savior. We are not working for salvation. We are working from salvation. For example, Titus chapter 3 and verse 4. Just so you know, the Bible doesn't contradict itself. But after the kindness and love of God, our Savior, that's interesting, God our Savior. Jesus is the Savior, therefore Jesus is God. God our Savior toward man appeared. God appeared not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, which he shed on us abundantly through Christ Jesus our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and those, and these things I will that you affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works, These things are good and profitable unto people. So you notice in verse 5, not by works of righteousness, but those that are saved by grace through faith, by God's mercy and his love that appeared, those that are saved that way, that are not saved by works, saved people do good works. You'll notice you're not saved by works, but those who are saved by grace do good works. We just we just don't need to get the cart before the horse. Ephesians two eight and nine a classic. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast or brag. So no one gets into heaven and says, you know what? I'm so glad that I went to church every Sunday. I read my I read three chapters of the Bible uh, every day. Uh, you know I gave to missions. I did missions. I I did this work, I did that work. Remember what Jesus said to them uh, in Matthew chapter 7, Some will, many will come unto me that day and say, Lord, Lord, have we done not many wonderful works in your name? And he said, depart from me, for I never knew you. So those that are working for Jesus, thinking that by their good works, they're going to get eternal life, have missed the idea of grace or the promise that salvation is by the finished work of Jesus for us, not our Ongoing work for Jesus. So it's very clear that we are not saved by good works, but those who are saved do do good works. It is true that Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. His authentic authorship is written in the hearts of everyone here who has Jesus living on the inside of them. Now, I want to point this out. So we are his workmanship, like it says in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. We usually just quote verses 8 and 9. You're not saved by grace, or you're not saved by works. You're saved by grace through faith, not of works. And then the very next passage says, but then we're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. But I wanted to point this out because this word workmanship is very, it's very interesting. Now, We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Do you guys like poems? Do you guys like poems? I wrote a little poem. It goes like this. Roses are red, bullets are lead, you will love me or be shot in the head. I entitled it You Will Love Me. Could you imagine if God was so insecure and so needy that he just You know, he had to threaten people. You will love me. You will love me. He's not that way. But I'm only I'm only kind of riffing off this and making light of it because in reality the word poeme, if you'll look up on the screen, we've defined it for you. This is how you pronounce it in the Greek. The word workmanship, we are his workmanship created in Christ, which means we are his poem. We are his poeme. So that which is made or done a work, a workmanship, a creation, according to Thayer's Greek uh, lexicon and dictionary, it's a product that is fabric literally or figuratively, a thing that is made, a workmanship, so a poemate is the Greek word for where we get the English word poem. So what does this mean? This means that each of us are a unique, authentic work of poet, poetic art from God. And I think what's cool about poetry is not one poem is the same as another. If it if it is, it would be uh, plagiarism. So each one of us are unplagiarizable. I don't even know if that spell check was just like reject, <laughs> and I couldn't find a word that would. I, I'm just making that up, but I think you get what I mean. You're unplagiarizable. You are a workmanship, a poem made by God, he's the author, he's the finisher, you're choosing your own adventure as you say yes to God, and he lives in and through you, you're writing the poem in real time, and it's being read by those around you. Isn't that fascinating when you think about it? So each one of us is this unplagiarizable poem or workmanship made by God. So we need not try to be like someone else We have everything and lack nothing in Christ. And as we walk in the spirit, the life of Christ lives through us. We publish to the visible world around us the invisible poetic work of Christ that's working within us. It's an inside job. He's writing the poem from within. It's his study. It's his coffee shop, if you will. Uh, It's his his library. It's It's his workshop. So Christian my encouragement to you and to me is to be the Christ-like expression that he continues to write in you that only you could be. In other words, Martha could only be the Christ-like expression of Christ that Martha could be. Would you all agree Martha's a unique expression of Christ? Yeah. Victoria, the same. Matthew, the same. Sean, the same. Uh, Brian, the same. Christy, everyone in this room. You... You could only be the authentic expression or the poem of Christ. Now, we might start off with the same line, roses are red, violets are blue, but there's so many roses and red poems, right? The truth is, is you are an authentic masterpiece, a workmanship of God, and he loves to write this story. He loves to be the author and the finisher, but it's like you're co-authoring with God, because you choose with your agency to say yes to Jesus or to say no to Jesus. So, this work that God is doing in us and through us is an inside job. It's an inside job. We live an abiding life, not a striving life. We live an abiding life, not a striving life. So this inside job is the gracious outflowing of the gentle internal work of Jesus inside of us. So as we abide in him and he abides in us, we draw from his victorious, abundant life. And the result is the fruit of his spirit free-flowing in and through us by our mere connection to Jesus. In other words, I say this all the time, uh, our activity stems from our identity. Because we're plugged into Jesus as, say, we're going to look at him in a minute here, as a, as a vine is in a branch, as we're plugged in, we draw from him the life source that we need to live out our life. So when Jesus uses parables, however, he does so to use an earth, earthly example of a heavenly reality. Now, though we may see what he's talking about in nature, the reality is that the unseen truth that Jesus is trying to reveal to us is more real than that which is seen. So we might even say uh, it is more on the quantum level but it's, it's real even though we don't see it and it's more real. What do I mean by that? Go to, the, go to the next slide. You know, Jesus, he uses agriculture a lot as examples because people could identify with that. Abide in me and I in you. Abide in me and I in you. And he uses the The object here in John 15, the object lesson of a vine and a branch. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself. Independent living, you could get a lot of stuff done, living independent from Christ. And you might say, walking after the flesh, um, uh, walking after your old nature, who you used to be before you received Jesus in your heart. And you, might, you maybe got a lot of results done. You could get a lot accomplished. Um, but it really it bears no fruit. It might even bear or produce artificial fruit. It might look like fruit, but it, it might be plastic. But it's not the fruit uh, that God has for us and desires for us, which would be his love, his joy, his peace, his gentleness, his goodness, his meekness, this faith, this temperance, His self-control, all that's found in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he asked this question, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot uh, bear fruit of itself unless it remains in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Remember, he said, I am the true vine. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, the same brings forth much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. But we do a lot of things without Christ. But I think what he's talking about are the things that are eternal, the things that matter, the things that are the the gold, the silver, the precious stones, not the wood, hay, and stubble that we, we were very good at accomplishing apart from Christ, that independent living. This is dependent living. This is the way Jesus lived his life, totally dependent on the Father, Remember, Jesus deferred. He said, the works that you see me doing, it's not I, but the Father in me. The words that I say, it's not me, but the Father in me. He always deferred to this dependent, unified, synced up life with him and the Father and the Spirit. He said, "I I don't act of my own will. I don't live independently. He lived totally dependent on the life flow of the Father through the Son. And he demonstrated that to us. Um, On that's basically how we're to live as well. So just as we cannot see the life, the sap, the energy, and the organic flow from the branch to the vine because it's an inside job, so it is with us as Christians. Lest we get all wrapped up in agriculture, grapes and vines and wine and uh, weather patterns and geosoil samples and pruning and seasonal harvest and all that kind of stuff let's look at the context of what Jesus is saying before and after this parable. Because if we jump right to John 15 and we get into the agriculture and we get into the the vineyard and stuff like that, and much could be said about this example. Um, You've heard sermons about this and series about this and preachers have camped out on this for weeks and weeks and weeks and you've heard multiple sermons. But let's kind of put it in context because starting in John 13, Jesus is going to wash the feet of the disciples and he's he's making his ascent to Jerusalem where he knows he's going to be crucified, buried, and rise again from the dead. And in John chapter 13, where he washes the disciples' feet and he's meeting with them and he's downloading to them valuable last words before he is crucified, he says this, truly, truly, I say unto you, he who receives... Whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. So you see this connection here about the inner workings of what Jesus is talking about. So here we see that this life is a receiving life, not an achieving life. And also, receiving Jesus is synonymous with receiving God. And those who have received Jesus as Christians, if Christians are received, it's the same as receiving Jesus. So it's a beautiful illustration about this inside work of God. But moving to a real capstone, important, paramount point of this message where Jesus is washing the disciples' feet. Oh, did you see that, the Super Bowl commercial about washing feet? I thought that was pretty good. I heard a lot of Christians were freaking out about it and complaining. And I don't know, I didn't, I didn't understand um, But I thought, hey, I'm glad because Jesus was mentioned to millions of people, right? But in the midst of Jesus showing he came not to be served, but to serve, he also is going to leave them with some instructions. And he doesn't do Moses 2.0. Jesus is very simple. And his simplicity is where it's so profound. He He doesn't add on to the dietary laws and the new moons and the feast days and what you should wear and what you should not do and how far you could go and how you... He doesn't do any of that stuff. He's like, okay, we're going we're gonna to put Moses in, in the category of the Old Covenant and that which is... He said that's fading away just as Moses had a veil on uh, for the glory of God, but it was fading, so is the Old Covenant and, and the law and the prophets were until John... The old covenant was until John, and then the kingdom is, is come, the kingdom is preached. And he says, I'm going to establish a new covenant by dying on the cross, but before I do, I want, to give you, I want to give you the parameters of what this new covenant looks like. It's not upgraded Moses. It's not Moses 2.0. It's not the 613 laws of the old covenant plus more. He's not doing that. He's saying, that's the old covenant. It's good. It served its purpose. It could show you your sin and imperfection, but it won't lift one finger to remove it. It could reveal it, but it can't remove it. So Jesus said, I'm gonna give you a new commandment, and the whole church and the new covenant gonna be built on this, that you have love one towards another. Why? Because love is the fulfilling of the law. If I loved you, I'm not gonna steal from you. If I loved you, I'm not gonna cheat on you. I'm not gonna to lie to you. I'm not gonna covet your stuff. If I love God, I'm not going to use His name in vain, or or build an idol and have other gods before Him. And so, love is the fulfilling of all of it. It is the greatest. There's faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. And if you don't have love, if you do missions, if you go to church, if you do this, if you do that, He says you're just it's it's vanity. It's like it's like uh, uh, symbols and and clanging symbols and. Uh, it just it's noise and clatter if you don't do this whole thing in love so jesus says here's here's the height of the the commandments here's the mountaintop the zenith the apex of it all as i have loved you that you should love one another by this shall all know that you are my disciples if you have love one toward an- another but this isn't just phileo love and this isn't just eros love this is agape love this is the love that's only sourced from the source who is love, and it's God. And Jesus says, as I have loved you, and this is right after, right on the heels of him washing feet, um, he's, demonstrating, <laughs> he's demonstrating what love looks like and who love is like. It's self-sacrificial. It's, it's others-oriented. Um, it's unconditional And that's why that commercial was kind of interesting because it doesn't matter who you are. With Jesus, he'll wash a prostitute's feet, he'll wash wash transgender's feet, homosexual's feet, a drunkard's feet, religious people's feet, self-righteous people's feet, Republicans' feet, Democrats' feet. He'll wash all the feet. He'll wash because he's an equal opportunity savior, not willing that any should perish. So as I have loved you, that you should love one another. By this shall all people know that you're my disciples, if you have love one toward another. So the world will know that we're Christians by our love, not for the world, but for each other. And when we we start to love each other as Christ has loved us, the world, who doesn't have a network like we do, think about how valuable... God's support network is. When I do therapy, a lot, of, a lot of times that we check in with people on their resources, what's your support system look like? What's your support network look like? You know, because people in isolation get very depressed, the, you know, anxiety. A lot of, like, the, the mental challenges or emotional, psychological struggles are in isolation, you know? And when you ask people about their support network... It's surprising what you find out. But God has a built-in support network called the local church. And amen for that. Praise the Lord for that. It's a blessing. It's God's gift to us. Church isn't our gift to God. (laughs) Look what we did for you, God. (laughs) It's his gift to us. So. So there's a catch, though, to this, to this command and imperative We can't love the way Jesus loves without the life and love of Jesus living in us and through us. This command requires an inside job. I can't love you as Jesus loved without actually having Jesus to love you through me. Does that make sense? So, in other words, Jesus is the dynamic of his own command. As we live by faith, Jesus is the empowerment of his own imperative. He's the empowerment of his own So he's not going to ask you to do something without supplying the resource. It's like when I work with Eric, you know? He's like, "You know what? You need you need this, you need that." Every day Eric is like, "Here's your safety goggles." Right? You need this. And when you join the military, Matthew, you don't have to you don't have to go buy your own ammo, and your own uh, M16 or M4 or whatever the latest is, or you don't have to do that. You don't have to buy your own camos and boots. So when so Jesus, when he says, "I want you to love as I have loved," he's not saying go out to the love factory and you know max out your credit card and see how much love you could get at the love store. Because God deposited his life and love in you so that he could love others through you. He's the dynamic of his own demand. He's the empowerment of his own imperative. Jesus is the infinite, unconditional, unlimited lover and supplies his love uh, to love all of the people around us. Go to the next slide. I think that's what that one is. God, God's love is infinite. And you and I have access to this. We have access to this. In other words, to live the Christian life and to pull off the New Testament command to love as Jesus loved others, it's not just difficult, it's impossible. We cannot do this without Jesus. The Pharisees loved the Pharisees. They had them over for dinner and they would ask for a jacket or a coat and they'd give it, they'd lend them stuff like that. And Jesus says, no, 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 not not, not that kind of love. Not phileo brotherly love. It's kind of confusing, too. Greater love has no man than this that a man would lay down his life for a friend. But you, you know what Jesus does? That's the greatest we could do as people, and that's rare, and that's hardly ever, maybe in some sort of military situation, or you know, you're pushing someone out of the way from an oncoming bus, or you take a bullet, or that's, that's heroic and rare, but Jesus said that's the greatest we could do as people. Jesus laid down his life for enemies. That's upgraded love. That style of love, that kind, that source of love is not in me. It's not in you either. It's not. We might do certain acts of heroic love naturally, um, but supernaturally, we're gonna need a source that's other than ourselves. So God deposited his life, and God is love, and he deposited his life and love in you So he could do this amazing love through us. Now, let's kind of continue with this idea of where he deposited his life and love in in putting this vine context in context. John chapter 14. So we looked at John 13. Let's look at John 14. John 15 is the vine. We're abiding me and I in you. And then John 16 and then John 17 is the Lord's Prayer. So we're putting it all in context here. And... So, kind of the reason why Jesus brought up the vine, abiding in him, and he and you is because he had been teaching in all of these chapters before and after about location, location, location. Because it's an inside job. Verse, chapter 14, verse 9. He who has seen me has seen the Father, and how do you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you do I not speak of myself, but of the Father who dwells in me he does the works believe me that i am in the father and the father in me or else believe me for the very work's sake themselves so jesus is mentoring and modeling not only what the christian life looks like but who the christian life is like so because jesus was in the father and the father was in jesus when we receive jesus this is our identity and our connection now too if anyone's in Christ, there are a new creation, old things have passed away, behold, all things have become new. You are one with Jesus, you are one with God, you are one with the Spirit. The Godhead takes up residence in us who believe. Now, when we live as Jesus lived, we will do the works that Jesus did. Now, this is kind of interesting, if you think about that. And maybe it could be better said that we may not do the same works that Jesus did, but we can do the works in the same way which Jesus was doing them, which is the life of Christ was allowing the life of the Spirit and the life of the Father to do the work through him. Again, he was dependent. He wasn't an independent branch. He was showing what a branch looks like as it abides in the vine. I and me and you and me. Apart from me, you could do nothing. You might even say, like for um, for Oakley, for example, you know, when, when she was in uh, Tabitha's um, tummy area, <laughs> Oakley, if she could speak, would be for me to live as mom, a fish, for me to live as water, for the, for a branch, for me to live is the vine, for a Christian, for me to live as Christ. Right? You could you could think of those are so those situations are so dependent. A branch by itself will dry up and wither. A baby outside of the womb prematurely can't survive. A fish out of water can't live. A Christian independent from Christ can't live the life designed by God for you to live in the supernatural way, for you to experience the life, the peace, the joy, and the fruit of the Spirit that he longs for us to experience. I hope that makes sense. It's an inside job for me to live as Christ. Now, um, so this inside job is a dependent life, not an independent life, as I was saying. And I'll refer back to one of my favorite passages on this is Galatians 2.20. Not I, but Christ. This is, this is, you know, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yeah, not I, but Christ lives in me. And this is, this is what it looks like. A not I, independent of all of this, Jesus living in me, living through me, but Christ who lives in me. Not I, but Christ who lives in me. John, 15, or John 14, 15, continuing in the flow from When Jesus gave the the commandment and he said, I want to be in you and I'm going to deposit my life in you, he's continuing to develop this thought before he even gets to the agricultural parable of the vine and the branches. John 14, look at what he says. And remember, this is right after, don't let your hearts be troubled, believe in God and believe also in me. This is verse 1. In my Father's house are many mansions. Keep that in mind, mansions. If you love me, keep my commandments. John 14, 15. And I'll pray the Father, and he'll give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of Truth. These are called like triadic incidences where you see God the Son, God the Father, and God the Spirit. It's all over the Bible. So the Bible doesn't use the word Trinity, but the Trinity is all over the Bible, by the way. Right? The Bible doesn't even use the word Bible. Didn't mean to throw you off there, it just means book, a book of books. But so you see the, tri- the triune God is, is going to be active. the God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit in the life of the believer whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him nor know him. But you know him for he dwells with you and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. And at that day you shall know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. Jesus answered and said unto them, if any man love me, he will keep my words and my father will love them and we will come unto him and we will make our abode with him. We will make our abode with him. Now this word abode is very interesting because it only appears two times in the New Testament and both in John chapter 14. Only two times. In verse two, where it says, in my father's house are many mansions. That's the word Uh, mino. And the word abode means mino. And at the end of verse 23, where we just read, we will make our abode, our mino, with you, it only appears two times in the the new covenant. And it's only in John chapter 14. And here's what the definition means. It means a stay in any place, an abode, a dwelling, a staying, that is a residence, a staying, an abiding, a dwelling, an abode, to make one's abode metaphorically, of God the Holy Spirit indwelling believers. So God says, I want to make our God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy abode home dwelling in you. You and me, I in you. God is the, the it's not the place of heaven that matters, it's the person of heaven. He is the dwelling and he wants to dwell in you. Quantum entanglement, by the way. <laughs> now, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are the we that makes the abode and the home in us. So, in other words, this is not a meology. This is the theology of a weology. It's us, God in us, and us in God. This is the us in God and the Godhead in us thing that Jesus has been uh, trying to elaborate on. John 16 and verse 7, he says this, But I tell you the truth, it is expedient or necessary for you that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Comforter, who is the Holy Spirit, will not come to you, but if I depart, I will send him to you. And basically what this is, this is the expansion program of the invisible kingdom of God on earth since Jesus ascended. You know when Jesus said, hey, greater works that you're going to do? I think what he's really illustrating is not like you're going to walk on more water, you're going to make more wine, you're going to heal more uh, blind people and stuff. I think what he's saying is when Jesus, when God prepared for himself a body and then he, he inserted himself into the human race as the last Adam, when Jesus was in Bethel, he was only there. When he was in Bethlehem, he was only there. When he was in Jerusalem, he was only there. When he... And, and I know that he, God, you know, He said, go home, your son is healed. He could, he could do that because He was God in the flesh. But when He took on a body, He took on locality. And I think what He's saying is when He deposits His life in and through believers, think about the spread that the gospel has had and the kingdom that's invisible and the King who lives in us. And this expansion program since uh, Pentecost, really. And you will be my witnesses after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You should be my witnesses in uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. And this expansion program comes from God living his life in us, living his life through us. So as you go into all the world and preach the gospel, as you live your life and Christ lives in you and you allow him to live through you, we're permeating, it's, it's light and darkness. We are permeating the dark world by the light of Jesus who is in us. We just gotta let him out. So, we who are one in Christ are the answered prayers of Jesus. Now, I know we often think, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. I know we think that's the Lord's prayer, and you could call it that if you want. But when Jesus actually prays, it's often referred to as the, the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus. You'll find this in John 17, and this is right before he's getting ready to be uh, crucified. And he says this in this prayer, in John 17, 11, and now I am in the world no longer, but these are in the world, and I am come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, those whom you've given me, so that they may be one as we are one that they may be one as we are one. Now, hang on. Look at how this prayer continues on this idea of being united with the Father as Jesus was united with the Father and the Spirit, being one, compatible. And remember, Jesus, all of the stuff that he did as far as his good works and his ministry and his ministering to people, it was because he was so well-related to the Father, his identity was secure, so his activity could be just for others. He's not not trying to get anything. He has everything, and he wants to give. And he's modeling what ministry looks like if we know that we're okay with the Father. And this, this prayer of Jesus becomes a reality. And it's my thought that Jesus gets his prayers answered. So if he's praying for oneness, the only obstacle was sin. And he dealt with sin just a couple chapters later. In fact, in John 19, verse 30, it is finished, Jesus said on the cross. So before he gets there, he prays this prayer. Look at the next slide, in John 17, verse 20. I do not pray for these alone, but for those also who shall believe on me through their word. So he's not only praying for the disciples, that they would love one another as he's loved, and that they would would demonstrate that love to each other, and that the world would see, oh, these guys are Christians because look at how they love each other. And then he, you know, he says um, that the Father would come in and would make our abode with you, and God wants to set up his shop and He wants to make His home in you and start writing that poem and start doing uh, his, his poetic work in and through you. And then, um, then He uses agriculture in John 15: Abide in me and I as you as a branch cannot uh, uh, bear fruit and accept it abide in me. And then John 16, hey, I'm not going to leave you comfortless. Uh, We're going to come unto you. We're going to make our residence in you. There's an obstacle, though. It's sin, but Jesus knows he's going to deal with that. And then he also says this, not only for you guys, but for other people that aren't yet believers, for them too. So Jesus is praying for the unbelievers. That they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us. It's the weology, it's the us, it's not the meology, it's all it's not all about me, so that the world may believe that you have sent me, and that I have given them the glory which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. Mark this down in your thought, I quote it often, but 1 Corinthians 6, 17, he or she that's joined unto the Lord is one spirit. It's an easy passage to remember. One with God. And I have given them the glory which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Loved them, us, as God has loved the Son? Think about that. He lo- does, does the Father love you as much as he loved Jesus? According to the Bible, he does. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. That could be said of you. You just need to believe it. So, we are the epistles and the poems and the love letters, so to speak, of God written so that others may see and believe in the Jesus that we have. As we love one another as Christ loved us, others will know that we are disciples of Christ by our love one towards another. This is magnetic love. It's a gravitational pull, as the sun is to our solar system. We are designed by the designer to experience and express the love of God. So it's our design. So I want to close with this. We have the infinite power of the Son of God in us. Wanting to, with his infinite power, express that through us. How do you experience this? Get saved. Receive Jesus. Lord, come into my life. Fill my heart. Boom. Give me the free gift of eternal life. Name written. After that, life has just begun. Eternal life has just begun. And now he wants us to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus to learn you've experienced him in salvation, now express him uh, in the daily life. And we have this in- infinite power source. We have a star-breathing God who lives in us. Consider for a moment the access we have to this infinite, d- divine, limitless source of power and life and love. We have... A power inside of us that spoke the worlds and stars into existence. Now, I'm reading that. That was not for dramatic effect. I'm reading that we have the infinite power. The song that you said, the second song that was sang today God beyond the galaxies, right? That beyond-the-galaxy God lives in us. And I like this phrase. If you you have a small God, you've got big problems. If you have a big God, you have small problems. We have a big God. We have a God beyond the galaxies. We have a star-breathing God. And I want to illustrate that by just kind of taking you on a little journey a little bit. Here's our sun. There's Earth. You could barely see it. And there's the diameters and stuff like that and kilometers and I don't know what the other measurement is. Maybe miles. Jupiter. Saturn. Uranus. No, not, not yours. Yours. Neptune. But there's our sun, right? Now, the sun is 93 million miles away. It takes like, what, seven, eight minutes traveling at the speed of light to hit Earth. But you could fit one million Earths inside our sun. That's huge. This stuff, this stuff blows my mind. God beyond the galaxies. This, this stuff really... Star-breathing God lives in you. This sun... Right? I forget how hot it burns and all the you know the specks of the sun. It just it, it it be who he be, he does what he does, he just does it, right? Good job, son. Good job. But God said, let there be light, and there was. That God said that. He said that. Let there be light. He said that. That's power. He said that. Go to the next slide. There's earth and scale compared to the sun. We're just a blip, but the earth seems pretty big when you're, you know, even if you're flying in an airplane, you're like, dang, this is huge, right? The earth seems giant. Well, look at how big the sun is. I mean, you could fit a million earths inside the sun. Go to the next slide. I wanna show you something about the sun. As big as our sun is, there's things much bigger than our sun. Now this is to scale. Our sun is, you can't really see it because it's getting flooded out with the lights, but our sun is the one that you could barely see in the very tail end of that. And as these suns, uh, Betelgeuse or Betelgeuse is one of them, and Arturius is one of them, and there's a lot of fancy names for these big suns, but I want to show you something that kind of just recently blew me away. Go to the next one. Okay, there's our sun. There's Arturius. It's, it's way bigger than our sun, right? That one that's. Did you, did you notice the bottom? It's U Y Scooty. Scooty me, I'm, I'm just a little son. <laughs> this star is a veritable hypergiant. And even with uh, the James Webb telescope, they're able to kind of find out more information about the stars that are out there in the galaxy, Milky Way. And incidentally, there's trillions and trillions and trillions of stars. When they say buy a sun for your loved one on Valentine's Day, you could buy, with 8 billion people, each person could have 3 trillion stars to themselves. it's such a like a moneymaker business because you're not going to exhaust the stars. And who would know anyways if you got a repeat? But I would want... Babe, you deserve UY U- Scooty. Okay, go to the next slide. I want you to see this. Remember the earth is compared to the sun? Look at the sun compared to Scooty. Holy cow. What? Now go to the next slide. Oh, you can hardly see it. Um, but the biggest star in the universe, this, that I copied and pasted this from like NASA or something, the biggest star in the universe that we know of, UY Scuti, is a, is a variable hypergiant with a radius 1,700 times larger than the radius of the sun. But this is the part that I want you to see. To put that in perspective, the volume of UE Scuddy is almost five billion suns could fit inside the sphere of this sun. One million earths could fit in our sun, but five billion suns could fit into this star. And God just said, let there be light. What I'm trying to say, greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world as small and insignificant as we would feel on earth as compared to sun and our sun our sun is like oh, it's a scuddy um we have the god beyond the galaxies the god of the universe we have the god before there was sun moons and stars and planets and solar systems we have the god that said let there be we have the god that's going to take that like a persian rug and roll it up like a scroll and all of that, and just cast it aside and create new heavens and new earth, and we're going to be there with him to enjoy that. I'm going to get in on the naming process if they're going to do some more stars and suns. You Scuddy? What? I don't even know what that means. Let's look at some verses to put this in context, and then we'll just wrap this up. So, Psalm 148, verse 3. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all the stars of light. And there's a lot, there's a lot of cosmology studies that could be done through some astronomical studies that could be done in the Bible, which is fascinating. It's a fascinating study, um, but because He spoke them into existence, the creation is responsible to the Creator. This one, this one fascinated me in the context of the Lord returning. Look at Isaiah chapter twenty-four and twenty-three. The moon and sun will both be embarrassed and ashamed. The Lord all-powerful will rule. When Jesus comes back, the second coming, you can read about this in Revelation chapter 19. Now, we did a whole study in Revelation, but you could read this specifically in Revelation 19, and I think 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. The Antichrist sets up shop in Jerusalem in the temple. He's calling himself that he's God, and he's like, yeah, yeah, whatever. And he's, he's like satanically empowered, and, uh, you know, he, he's, he's showing off. He's got some signs and wonders. He's got some card tricks, basically, you know. He's got some stuff that he's doing to fool the world. But when Jesus shows up, and the armies and the saints that are with him follow him, like it says in chapter 19, his robe, is dipped in blood, and on his thigh is named the Word of God, and out of his mouth goes a sharp a two-edged sword. But it says that he smites the Antichrist with the brightness of his coming. I'm, you know, this is kind of a sad illustration, but remember Gandalf in one of the Lord of the Rings where he's like, he throws down his staff and then the light goes. Well, when Jesus shows up, he shows up and just levels everything with the bright with the glory and I think what's taking place too when he comes in the clouds. Um, you know I think the clouds is kind of a veil to protect people because remember, remember God said to Moses, Moses said, God, just show me who you are. And God said, You can't see me and live, Moses. Well then put me in a cleft of a rock. And then he said, I'll let my goodness pass over. When Jesus was on the cross, he said, I could call angels down and they could take care of this. But if Jesus would have took off the skin because he's God in a bod, if Jesus would have took off the skin, not like Scooby-Doo at the end where you take off the mask, but if Jesus were to, the skin was grace because if the skin was removed, no one would be able to stand in the presence. What I'm getting at is, Jesus is so, his glory is so powerful. It's the sun and the moon are going to be ashamed. They're kind of going to be like, ah, you know, when the creator shows up. Because he spoke that, he's the, he's the uncaused cause of the sun for even burning in the first place. I, I, just, I tripped out yesterday on this, this leading chemist. Uh, was ranting, I need to share this video with you guys, Um, and he was talking about uh, biochemistry before before there was life, shut everything, he's the Nobel winner, he's a Christian, and he's just, he's talking about how hard and difficult it is for things to exist or to come together unless there's a design and a designer. And um, (laughs) he's like, he's like, Okay, if you, get, if you go to the store and you get some chicken broth or turkey broth and then you take it home and you fill it up in a pot and you get some turkey feathers and maybe a wishbone and you throw it in there and you, you turn it up really hot and boil it, you're not going to get a turkey no matter how hard you boil it. Um, but So God said, let there be light and there was light. So even beetle Beetlegeist, Uh, Arturius, our son, all of them, when Jesus shows up, his radiance and his glory is so powerful that the sons, as if powerful they are, bow to the creator. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 16. And he had in his right hand seven stars. Could you you imagine he's holding a star? And in his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance, his face, was as the sun that shines in its strength. That's what I'm saying. When Jesus comes back in his glorified state, not baby Jesus in a manger, you know, like like how cute Oakley is, but when Jesus comes back in his full, unveiled, radiant glory, his face is like the power of a sun, and they say, like, it's nuclear fusion that takes place, that's just exploding and exploding, and it just keeps doing that and, and keeps doing that and doing that. And if we didn't have... Our little sun is right here, but the sun, rays are going off in 360 degrees. We catch one little ray. It takes eight minutes for it to get here. It's traveling at 186,000 miles per second. And, if I, and then we, we get there, and we're like, oh, thank you for that little ray. We don't really say that. We usually complain. <laughs> It's too hot. It's too cold. But all I'm, try- I'm not trying to make anyone feel bad about complaining about the weather. Mark Twain said, everyone always talks about the weather, but no one ever does anything about it. <laughs> Revelation 21, 23, last two verses, talking about uh, in the coming future. And the city had no need of the sun. This is the new Jerusalem. Neither of the moon, To shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. Can you imagine? Jesus is the light. He's the sun, the S O N that replaces the S U N. Revelation 22 and verse 5. And there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light and they shall reign forever and ever. God is light, the Bible says in 1 John, and in him is no darkness at all. When he's, when he's able, I think that's what Jesus was doing on the Mount of Transfiguration. He showed them a little bit. When he comes back, he's showing the world a lot of bit. But we will have glorified bodies because we have been changed in a moment. So we could we could. We're compatible with the elements of the glory of God. But those that aren't saved would be incompatible. And he just, just the brightness. God takes care of everything. So I'm saying all that to say that's who lives in you. Think about that. You wise scuddy breather that you could fit 5 billion of our sons into that son who they will all bow when he comes back to little tiny earth by the way it says it's his footstool he comes back um and we're going to be with him forever and ever and ever we're made clean close compatible we're fit for heaven, we're fit for God, we're made for this light, and we will enjoy his light and love throughout all of eternity, amen? Let's stand and be dismissed. Jesus, if there's someone here that's never received you, I pray that they would just, by faith, ask you to come into their heart. For those of us that are saved, I pray that we'd have a greater awareness of our access that we have to you, of the power that resides in us. Not that we have the power, but you are the star-breathing God that lives in us. Greater is he that's in us than he that's, or anything that's in the world. You are the great God that resides in us. And I pray, Lord, that we would just be more conscious, more aware of the inside job that you're doing in and through us. And I pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. 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 Amen, you're dismissed.